What do hospital workers wish the outside world knew about what it's like working in a hospital during COVID-19? We're going to talk about that next on the Monday Christian Podcast. Listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here's your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there. Welcome to another edition of the Monday Christian Podcast. And I'm so glad that you've taken some time out of your day once again to check out this podcast. Maybe this is your first time. If so, welcome. Um, But maybe you're a regular and you've listened to our podcast for a while. I appreciate it. And I'm glad you're sticking around. Um, I just wanted to make a, a little note for you that on January the 18th, we're going to be launching a switch in the way that we currently do this podcast. And for the last number of years, really since its origin, um, it's been me. I interview a guest and that's about it. Um, But starting on January the 18th, I'm going to be bringing on a co-host, my friend David Harkoff. And as I shared in the previous episode, David's just a great friend of mine. We're at a similar phase in life in that we're both working on our PhD programs, both kind of have a busy schedule. But um, the podcasting and creating great content is just something that we really enjoy. And um, there's uh, just a number of things that we've talked about that that it kind of got to the point where I said, David, you just need to come on this show and um, be a regular voice here. And so he graciously accepted. And so on January the 18th, uh, we make that full transition. And so I'm really looking forward to that. The first couple of shows is just going to feature me and David as you get to get used to his voice a little bit more. And then from there, we're planning on bringing on a number of guests that will continue to speak to the topics that you love and you care about. So again, that's just something I'm excited about. Today on the podcast, though, I got my friend Nate Davison, and he's going to share on a very, very important topic. That relates to this whole uh, COVID-19 season that we continue to be in, even though it's 2021. And so he just shares a great perspective from the medical community. We originally recorded this back in December, and so there might be a dated reference here or there. Um, but the bulk of what he shares uh, can very much apply to the situation that we find ourselves in today. So I'm excited. Uh, let's go ahead and take a listen to this interview that I had with Nate Davison. This week is my friend Nate Davison, and Nate is the host of the Grace Story podcast. If you haven't checked that out, I encourage you to go and check it out. And, uh, you know, just kind of out of habit, I love to, whenever I check out new podcasts, I love to go and leave a review. So just did that before coming on the on the show. Left you a five-star review. There you go. And a comment. Yep, yep. Um, Nate's been a registered nurse for eight years, currently works in a float pool in Kentucky, and work had, for the past six months uh, has been working um, with a number of patients dealing with COVID. And so because of that, I wanted to bring Nate on. Um, it's kind of a dual purpose because you run the Great Story podcast, which I think is awesome, and we'll chat about that for a minute. But specifically, I wanted to talk about um, just everything uh, – relating to COVID and what your experience has been in the medical community. So Nate, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. And I'll tell you, it is it's weird being on this side. I'm used to asking the questions. So um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, it's a, it's a fun switch. It's a fun switch, isn't it? When you go yeah. from at, being the one asking the questions to the one having to give the answers, isn't it? Yeah. The control is gone, but you know, then, uh, <laughs> I'm good. At, I, I like to wing it. So, you yeah, know, yeah. We'll, we'll see what, what the answers are. I feel like we could go the whole hour and just kind of repeat each other's questions. Like I would ask you a question and then you respond in a question. That just kind of seems like something just, two hosts would do. Just really emphasize the Socratic method and go back. And <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, we, we might lose some viewers. So uh, I wouldn't. Well, for those that don't know you, um, 
give a little bit about your background. How did you come to faith in Christ? What did that look like? So faith in Christ, yeah, I, I grew up, um, and you actually went to the school. I, I grew up on a college campus, uh, Bible college called God's Bible School and College. And my dad was the public relations director for that school for, you know, basically my entire time there. So I went K through college um, at a Bible college. So you're just surrounded by, it's a very unique environment, you know, campus kids, you were a campus kid as well. Yep. Uh, and you, you, it's uh, good to be in that sort of club because it's a unique type of mentorship you get from a whole array of people. But as far as uh, faith in Christ, I think that goes to, you know, growing up, you, you just kind of morph into understanding the right way to do things, the right way to look, the right way to talk, um, and you can get by. Um, and, but somewhere around in uh, those years of high school, um, I'd gone to one of the many revivals we had on that campus um, and made my way home and, and had to take that personal responsibility for this is my responsibility to actually make a relationship here. Um, and then from that on, certainly not perfect and certainly a journey of finding, you know, who I am in Christ, but definitely in a relationship with Christ and on a journey. So, so how did you enter the medical field coming from that background? So, yeah, and that is kind of interesting because usually people have, um, you know, their, I, I wanted to make a difference or, I had to take care of my sick aunt for a number of years and really liked what I did with that. Mine was a little bit more pragmatic. So around that time it was about 2008 and I was looking for, you know, a job. I had graduated from GBS with an associates in Bible and theology and a general ed degree associates as well. And I was like, well, what's next? I don't know. And looking, we're right in the middle of a recession. Um, not many places are hiring. And I went and I, I, my mom has been a nurse at University of Cincinnati. She was an emergency department nurse for 30 years. Um, and so I, she said, come and see what I do. So I shadowed her and uh, the most amazingly terrible thing happened that night. I was in the trauma bay, which I came to know and love. And uh, a gentleman came in who uh, had the misfortune of getting drunk and passing out on a railroad track. Um, and wow. it was just a very uh, gruesome scene. Uh, blood was everywhere. Uh, I looked down beside me, not to get too graphic, but I saw his feet in a bucket of ice beside me. He was life flighted in. His friends had tied a um, belt around his shins to, uh, you know, stave off uh, hemorrhage. And I loved it. I was 21 wow. years old and I loved it. Um, and my mom tells me other nurses were walking around saying, hey, you know your son's in there. And she's like, yeah, he wants to see it. And uh, <laughs> it must just run in the family. But uh, that's what got me into nursing school, kind of that love of, um, you know, it kind of sounds macabre. But not that I want that to happen to people, but I really wanted to be a part of it when it did happen. Um that and uh, it's turned out to be two recessions and a pandemic proof on on uh, losing yeah. job in that. So um, that's kind of the the pragmatic way of getting into it, as well as I really like it. So it's a fascinating journey. You know, before we get into that, I just want to touch base real quickly. I mentioned the Grace Story podcast, and we're going to come back to your um, and your medical history. But um, why did you launch the Grace Story podcast? Because I've got a feeling that it kind of ties in a little bit with your passion for what you do in nursing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there, there is definitely a crossover there. You know, I was thinking about that, too, as Amber approached me about what, what role I might fill in Grace Story if I were to come on board. And um, for which, for those that don't know, what is the Grace Story? I, honestly, I don't know a whole lot about it. My, I know my wife attended. It's a, it was a conference uh, close to Cincinnati, Ohio, this year. What, just in a quick nutshell, what is Grace Story all about? Yeah, so Grace Story exists to uh, connect people with education, resources, um, a community um, where they can begin, continue, uh, or get resources for their journey of restoration, and whatever that may be restoration from childhood trauma, restoration from um, uh, pornography uh, addiction, um, restoration from, because, you know, restoration is essentially the theme of scripture and the gospel. And it's a beautiful, beautiful through line for anyone's life, um, that restoration. So that in a nutshell, that's what we exist for. And one of the main avenues right now that we use is a women's conference 
And there is a men's conference in the works because women aren't the only ones who need registration or restoration. And, um, but right now, one way that we can reach people is through a podcast. Um, and, and everybody was stuck at home when it launched. We were in that first lockdown, that first wave. And so, uh, we've, we've had pretty good success with it and people kind of, uh, jumping on board to listen. And it's really the, the guests having on the caliber of guests. I mean, I just feel lucky to be able to, you know, Hey, I want to learn about neurobiology of attachment. Uh, who, who do we have as an expert? Hey, have him on for an hour. And then Ryan Waters, you know him. He's just. Yeah, we uh, had him on the podcast. Yep. He's such a deep, deep well. And it's like almost every word that comes out of his mouth. You're like, I will quote that. That's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't wait for him to write some books, but he comes on frequently because he's our content strategy director. So um, I'm just tickled to be a part of that group and 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 have that opportunity. But you're, you're right. So, so in a way, like there's almost the full circle aspect of it because you work with patients and mm-hmm. then, but you know, they go home, <laughs> hopefully. And in a sense with this podcast and everything that you do, you're like taking it to the next step in a way, aren't you? Well, yeah. And it's meeting people where they are. And, and you're mm-hmm. right. Number one jobs of a nurse is to be an educator. Um, you have mm-hmm. advocate and then educator is right underneath that. Um, and being able to adequately transfer complex information uh, that's up here. Doctors are terrible at it for the most part. Um, telling you your diagnosis and how we're going to take care of it. Um, but, you know, then also advocating for their wishes and giving them the education, the knowledge that they need to make a good um, uh, a, you know, decision on their own health care. Yeah, that's tough. So education, certainly. So that sometimes in life, uh, it has a way of God has a way of putting things, passions in your uh, your way or along the way. So I always loved, you know, talking on a mic or or or, you know, making a movie or, you know, and none of it was ever good. None of it was ever, you know, something that you would want people to watch and put on YouTube and like, we're going to change the world. But it was fun. Or were you, were you the type of guy that did like audio cassettes and then recorded cassettes and then you had to like mix, you know, you know, you had to wind, you had to take that pencil and then wind up the tape and then record over this section. Like I was that guy. Were, were you that guy? That, that wasn't in the questions down here, <laughs> but yes, um, <laughs> I, I actually went to, and this is going to show some age on me. I went to Radio Shack uh, back in the day and I well, got, yeah, exactly. I got a tape recorder uh, that you could put tapes in, uh, but you could also hook it up to your phone. And so yes. those early years of probably seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th grade, I spent uh, the majority of my time doing prank phone calls. Um, I think yeah. it's where every podcaster starts. I started there as well. Not not quite in the full fledged. See, mine mine was a little different. I I had those little micro tapes, right, in the mm-hmm. handheld yeah. recorder, and I would take that to youth camp. I don't remember going into, you know, you'd be staying in a guy's dorm. Well, guys say the craziest things, right, when it's two in the morning, and it's very it can be very incriminating. So that was that was how it all began for me. So it sounds like you had a, a similar similar background. Well, Gil- Gilbert Gnarly, I don't know if you know him. Yes, he, you know, he's, he's I, amazing. He an inspiration for me. Gilbert Gnarly, I just loved what he did. So <laughs> I would call up, you know, McDonald's and you know, uh, the poor people that took my call. <laughs> you know, asking how much it cost to get my entire mouth in gold teeth. And I just wanted to pull them out. And you know, I, none of it made sense. None of it was really probably funny. <laughs> Uh, but I enjoyed it. And, you know, you, you have things that go along in your life like that. And you're like, man, I'll never use that. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I would look back in my nursing career and be like, how does a Bible and theology degree really apply to what I'm doing? Um, mm. you know? and, and then next thing you know, you're trying to weave scripture into the healing process of mental health. Um, mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. It probably was good for me to understand, you know, hermeneutics and, and all those different things, even if it is at the two year level. So, um, yeah, it's amazing it, how that works. It, well, it's fascinating. I'm a huge history buff. So right now, uh, my, 
the guy that I'm studying is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So Janan, my wife, is hearing a lot about Solzhenitsyn these days. Um, I'll just randomly, you know, walk into, you know, the living room and talk about, you know, I'm reading the Gulag Archipelago right now. And, and it's just, you know, it's just fascinating. But one of the things you often learn in history is that people will go through different points in their life where there's moments that feel totally on, disconnected. Mm-hmm. But then somewhere later on down the line, it's like it comes back and it's useful. And it's, 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 yeah, very, very fascinating how that works. So basically, if people turn in, tune into the Grace Story podcast, they're going to hear Nate Davison making prank phone calls. Is that the gist yes. of what I heard yes, you, you say? The entire okay. yes. premise of it, uh, along with experts uh, who also join me on those prank phone calls. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I love it. <laughs> All right. So I want to get into really our, our topic here. And that's the topic that I put down. What do you say? You've got some really good questions here. <laughs> well, don't give it away. This is the audience thinks that this is all you know off the cuff brilliance that you have n- had no time to prepare. So um, well, knowing knowing you, Ezra, there probably are some off the cuff questions uh, <laughs> on the way. So you give me the bare minimum. And, uh, that, this is what I always tell my guests. I say I always have about eight questions that I put down. But then after I send the list off to you, that's when I put the real questions in. So that's that's how I operate. Um, okay. So our topic is specifically, you know, what we wish or what maybe you would wish every hospital worker, um, what every hospital worker wishes they others knew about COVID. So we're going to get into some controversial stuff, uh, which, I, you know, is just so great to do. Um, but basically through this, I want people that are watching, listening, uh, to just get a better sense for what you do. So talk about the last six months in particular. Talk about the last week in particular. What does a typical day look like for you uh, when you're in the hospital, especially given the fact that you're on the COVID floor at this point? Yeah, so um, I, I moved from my my position at University of Louisville Hospital. I was in the emergency department there um, in February. And that was really from a number of reasons, including burnout. Um, but I, I moved to that position at a, a time when we didn't know we were going to have all this going on. So I moved to a float pool position at another hospital in Kentucky. Um, and yeah, it was weird. I had helped uh, develop the infectious disease response team at University of Louisville. So moving over to um, the other hospital, we started learning those things all over again as we amped up for a response. So the float pool position there, uh, it can be anywhere. There's five different or hospitals or so, and, and you can be moved in between the hospitals in the middle of a shift. Um, wherever the need is, you go, you're there for 12 hours um, and you're, you're flexible. Um, but they've, uh, we've been used uh, a lot on COVID floors. And just to give you a picture of the last week, um, things have really amped up over the last month. Um, we're in a very different place as as a, a hospital than we were, you know, a month ago. Um, and we we actually filled up one entire location with just COVID patients. Um, and, and there's news stories on, on that. It's common knowledge. But uh, they started moving, opening up another COVID unit over at another hospital that was within the group. So we could float over there as well. Um, but a typical day for me uh, includes... Um, and we'll talk more about how the rules have kind of changed too. But I, I show up, I, I get my assignment, um, and then I make sure I have my papper hood because I have a beard, so I don't wear the N95 mask. I wear a glorified trash bag with a with a clear uh, section over my head with a vacuum cleaner type filter coming out the back. It just sounds terrible. It 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 wasn't great, um, and, and I do have a little touch of claustrophobia. Um, so there at the beginning, we weren't just, there's different levels of PP, personal protective equipment. And at the beginning, we didn't really know what we were working with. So I, we were in full head to toe, um, you know, hazmat suit type stuff. Um, and it was apocalyptic looking in the hospital as everybody's walking around with this equipment on. Uh, but now we've kind of moved to a, to a blend based on CDC recommendations. Um, so I make sure I have that papper hood, I check it and I make sure there's no holes, because uh, that would defeat the purpose. And then I make sure I have enough battery. Um, if I don't, then I have to go to uh, a different floor and get a new battery, uh, check my filter, make sure I'm ready to go. Um, and then we uh, we try to limit our exposure in the room. So I check my patients on the cameras. So, you know, the patient experience probably is, is a little bit different than people are used to. 
Uh, and then, you know, figure out what my plan of attack is going to be for the night um, and try to cluster my care around moments going into that room. So you go in, you do everything you possibly can, and then you, you move out of that room until the next time you have to go into that room. Otherwise, um, you're waiting on them to call out or you're going to look in and figure it out. But um, it really has changed because it, I in the emergency department, I could just, you know, check in on my patient, look on the monitor, see how they were doing. I had a bit of a scare with one patient uh, recently. Um, she's on, you know, we're used to patients being on two, three, ten liters. Um, this uh, individual was on um, 55 liters uh, at 50% FiO2, which is a, an extraordinary amount of oxygen um, that they needed. Um, and it's basically a nasal cannula that has heated high flow going through it. So it doesn't dry out your nose, but it kind of plugs your nose. Mm-hmm. And anytime we'd roll them, uh, they would desat down, their oxygen saturation would drop down into the, the 60s just by rolling them. Uh, this person would um, go down into the 80s um, just by talking. Um, so, you know, real issues going on. Um, and unfortunately, her her equipment had kind of popped off, which is no one's fault. Um and, and she was able to hit the button and I came in and she was in the 20s and 30s. Um, so I fully believe, you know, if I, you know, hadn't been uh, checking on her and if she hadn't been, you know, also responsive to her care that we may have uh, moved towards a code situation. And, and, and that's wow. just the process of this disease, the very, very unpredictable and nasty virus. And um, it's manifesting itself um, in ways beyond just surviving it. Um, then there's some complications afterwards for a lot of people. So it's a different world, different You've world. Touched, you touched on this a little bit, but walk us through March through now. What did that look like initially? Just kind of in a brief nutshell, what did that look like initially? And you mentioned how different even the last month has looked. So how, how has that shifted? How has your mindset shifted in the past nine months? Well, eight eight months in a, in a nutshell. Um, so the the first part, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it was frustrating uh, initially. Frustrating along with, you know, anybody in public. Nurses were told one thing for our career. So I've been in, in a, I, almost a decade, sounds weird, but almost a decade of nursing, another five years of being an ER tech before that. So 13 plus years in, in the medical field. And you don't reuse an N95 mask. That's just, you throw it away when you're done, you get a new one. But based on shortage, we were now assigned an N95 mask for, you know, the next five whatevers. And there was confusion. Is this five uses in a shift? Is this five shifts? Is this five weeks? What, what so the rules were changing. Um, and then we're learning about UV light and what types of UV light work to actually kill the virus because there's different types of UV light and only one of them works. So even going outside, you know, UVA, UVB, no, it's UVC that kills it. UVC doesn't come through the atmosphere. So you have to artificially do that. Um, and then, you know, the, the difference in what I'm able to do for my patient was frustrating as well. And that's mm. still, um, you know, a frustration today. Um, so there at the beginning, it was... It was frustrating. The rules were changing because, you know, even in public, you know, first we're not wearing masks uh, to preserve them. Uh, That was the reason uh, they gave. And then, uh, wait, we are wearing masks, but is it for me or is it for you? Like the miscommunication from from authorities was was real frustrating. And I think you'll you'll see that with everyone across the board. Like, hey, what's what? And, And I don't know. You don't actually have evidence to back this up. That was the other thing, you know. It was best practice at the time. We were getting conflicting information out of uh, a certain country um, who was being less than truthful. Um, okay. You know, so, uh, or, or at least, you know, we, we didn't know what was the truth. Um, mm. So we're, we're running off of information that is at, at best incomplete. Uh, you know, right. people are trying to make themselves look a little bit better on the world stage. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's frustrating as well as, is this really necessary? Um, and what are we working with? So you go through the summer, things kind of lull. We're also working on lockdown. Although the, mm-hmm. the one benefit of that was the roads were extremely easy to get to work. On. <laughs> <laughs> and you knew cops weren't going to stop you. Um, yeah. so I drove exactly the speed limit, maybe five, five over, but, you know, no one pulling anybody over unless they absolutely have to. So that was, that was a good time. There were lots of snacks donated people really got behind healthcare workers so that was a good thing mm-hmm. um 
But then over the summer, seeing some of the science start to to come out and, and understanding, um, you know, how masks work and what they work for, um, yeah, that was good to know because at first people are asking, some of my friends asked, hey, do these work? And I'm like, I, I don't know. You're right. I don't know. Um, does this uh, suffocate me in carbon dioxide? And I'm like, well... I don't think so, but I can't give you any hard evidence that it that it doesn't. Um, but you know, observational uh, science would tell me that no, it doesn't, because surgeons wear them for twelve hours in in the you know operating room, and we're not running through you know surgeons every twelve days to get a new one. Um, they're surviving this, um, and they're very smart people, kind of diabolical uh, surgeons because they like to cut on people, but still smart people. <laughs> Uh, so then, so let me, let me just pause you right there you, you're mentioning the mask so let, let's just go there i mean okay. so in terms of that obviously now in canada it's very different uh, i'm doing a lot of interviews right now with uh, canadian pastors for example pretty much not a non-issue there there's some uh that in canada that i've seen that it is you know that it is an issue but i would say not near like the states in the states it's very divided um should i wear a mask should i not is this an infringement on my liberty so um let's just go to the basics does wearing a mask help what does that do um how has that how has your view on that changed from saying i don't know to the position you hold today yeah uh, and you know i look back there it was probably march or april where i'm actually i'm looking doing literature reviews myself which you know take that with you know it's me doing it um but it, not on google or twitter or uh you know youtube which there's nothing wrong necessarily with going through those sources as long as you understand what you're working with um but there's also you know uh, i'm in grad school so i have access to a ton of evidence-based articles a ton of databases and there was just nothing out there um that was other than some some observational stuff about what what exactly does this do to my brain whenever I'm you know putting something over my face and breathing in my own carbon dioxide I, I don't know um, I'd, I'd like to say you're fine uh, but I don't know there's nothing out there but in the last several months because of necessity there are our research there's research out there that they that whenever one person wears a mask, somewhere about 65% and there's some, you know, standard deviation on either side, but about 65% uh, reduction in transmission of the virus. And then if both people are wearing masks and uh, practicing social distancing, it's somewhere about around 70 to 75%. So still you're not going to take out, there's not going to be a 100% uh, chance or like an N95 where it's literally in the label, 95% of particles, like you're not going to get that with, even a medical grade surgical mask. Um, but along with that, there's some emerging observational uh, studies that are saying, well, there's also a benefit of wearing this for not just protecting you, but protecting me in that the amount of inoculate that comes in, the amount of the virus I'm exposed to, that can actually decrease the severity of my symptoms, which kind of correlates with what we're seeing in reductions in you know, the amount of people uh, dying, but um, you know that's that's kind of gone up a little bit too. So um, it works. The science is there now that it works, um, and um, I, there's more on should I do this because I'm told to. Um, I don't like being told what to do, so I can understand why. You know that that might just be an American thing. I don't know mm. if Canadians are okay with that a little bit more, but um, I always joke that our national motto is "Tread on me." That's our, that's our, that's Canadian's national model. <laughs> you just tell us what to do and, and, and we'll do it. And we'll just, we'll just lay back. I'm being a little facetious yeah, there, but. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the general um, view that we have of Canadians that it's just like go with the flow. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and so I think, I think for a lot of people, uh, it's interesting when I talk to Canadians, they do not understand an American mindset that, especially where it's seen as a freedom issue, a liberty issue. Now I live in Idaho right now. And we've seen some of the crackdowns in California in particular, and a number of people have moved from California because of not only the restrictions, but just a lot of different things that kind of people in, in political power will institute policies uh, that have a trickle-down effect of hurting especially small businesses, things like that. Um, and so I guess as this has gone, gone along, um, like how, how do people inside the hospital – 
kind of getting to the part of our question, when you talk with nurses, um, doctors on your floor, and uh, they encounter people on the streets um, that are maybe resistant to, to wearing a mask, resistant to social distancing, what's their response? How do they interact with that? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I think I think we're part of the problem. Uh, I think we're part of the problem when it comes to resistance. Um, because generally the, the response, and I have been guilty of this, maybe not in a really, really emphatic way, but, uh, shaming and yelling, um, are not a real good way to get somebody on board with something whenever they don't want to do it anyways. And they really don't think it works. And some even think it's a hoax. I mean, this Mm. is obviously, I, there was one, you know, someone, uh, told me they thought that, uh, or at least I read it, they thought, um, you know, that maybe this was like a marketing scheme by China to infuse the virus and then corner the market on masks, then boom. Um, yeah. You know, I'm like, wow, yeah, that yeah. that makes sense, but kind of conspiratorial. But yeah. then for the, the, the address, education, you don't yell at someone and shame them into mm. learning the alphabet or learning about their diabetes or, you know, whatever that spectrum of education is. Uh, mm. I don't think I'd do well in a microbiology class if I was just, it was always negative reinforcement. And if you don't get right. this, you're an idiot. How do you not know this already? It's obvious. Right. All the information is there. And even that tone, even though I'm creating that, aren't like, whoa, okay. Um, and it, for, for most, and it would me too, I'd just shut down. I'm like, okay, well, I don't even care. And you can't, mm. you can't tell me what to do because God bless America. You know, these are my rights. And I get it. Yeah. That makes sense. I, and I think, I think we're in the medical community. We, we're part of the problem. Um, so you're not going to get, we, we know we're not going to get 100% compliance on, on most interventions. Um, and, and that's why we put in some wiggle room, um, or at least scientists do, and epidemiologists. We need to get 75 to 80% of people to wear masks and it will have this reduction. Um, we know there's going to be a certain amount of people that can't wear masks because of mm-hmm. pre-existing conditions. And, and those are real. Um, but go to YouTube and just type in um, Karen or something and, and you'll find a whole bunch of people with YouTube videos of Karens in, in uh, you know, shopping malls or wherever that aren't wearing their masks and people are confronting them and saying, mm-hmm. you, you're part of the problem. It's not going to bring them on board. Um, so- I've, I've seen that. I've seen uh, at least that sentence or a variation of that sentence. If you are this or you don't do this, you are the problem say in America. I've seen a variation of that so many times. And um, w- when I've been on the opposite side of the, the thought process that the, you know this person might be sharing, as soon as I see that, that's very off-putting. And I just think, okay, um, it, it feels like it's clearly speaking in, in a bubble. And so I guess, what are some ways that you found, um, I'm assuming you would come down pretty heavily on wearing a mask and and social distancing and all that. Am I correct with that? Like that you take that pretty seriously? I, I take it pretty seriously. I mean, there's yeah. different levels of what you should do and there's no like one answer to a situation. Right. It's taken case by case and also correlating that with current situation of, cause you know, it goes like this when you're looking at data and there's so much data, but yeah. you based on what I've seen and the disease process and then also people, I mean, I have patients that have been around for seven, eight, nine weeks in the hospital. Uh, related yeah. to this, that, that that's their diagnosis. They're stuck. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I take it, I take it pretty seriously. Um, so, so when you jump on social media and then you encounter someone who says, okay, um, it's not a big deal. It's all a hoax, right? It's all, you know, you get, you get, and I think we've moved a lot. I remember in the early days it was, um, does anyone even know anyone that has COVID, right? Yeah. That was, that was always the question. And now the sobering reality is that not only do we know people, most of us, I would say, uh, know people that have died from it as well. And so I think it's very sobering as, as that's moved along. So how do you, like just, because this is a re- very real question, how do you adjust your message on social media? How do you um, engage with other people in a loving way when you hold that view pretty strongly and that's reinforced based off of the data that you work with every single day? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't really good at it at the beginning. Uh, I mean, I I appreciate the honesty there. That's good. Well, I didn't say anything like super inflammatory, but you know, you can always go through and do those passive aggressive likes, dislikes, 
Yeah. yeah all those things. Um, I'll like you. I'll like you. Not sure no, about you. Frowny that. face. Yeah, you, yeah. you, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. You know, you know that's kind of, and, and that's kind of how I deal with conflict. Um, you know, <laughs> not, a, not a great way to do it. Um, you should have gone back to prank calling. That would have been more effective. Yeah. Well, yeah, there were people that would prank call people and, you know, <laughs> you're COVID positive. Like there's terrible people everywhere. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I mean, it's taken a while, but, I think my response is to, um, you don't have to respond to everyone, even if they mm. comment on your page. Mm. Um, you have your realm of reality, and that's what you're responsible for. And when it comes to other people, they're responsible for their reality. And certainly there's some overlap there where it's, you know, okay, if I affect you in a certain way, um, then then I'm responsible for that as well. Um, but I don't have to... Uh, chase down every conspiracy theory and I don't have to make sure that you know what's really happening. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, there, these, this is your life. This is your choices. And, and yeah, you'll have to live with your choices. Um, and you may never think that your choice was wrong or your choice may have been right. Um, I've certainly been wrong about things this year, um, several things, but, um, yeah, it's changed thinking of that person from, from that perspective. And I still don't get it right because, I mean, once you've, you've held a phone and, and we're, we're using iPads to um, help people say goodbye, um, and we've also, as nurses, um, really filled the gap of n- no one's visiting these people because they can't, um, and whether or not you think that's a good idea. I think it's a good idea because we don't want to spread terrible disease uh, in the community. Um, but once you've held that phone and listened to a daughter say to their mom, hey, I know you're tired. You can let go now. We're going to be okay. And you know, have somebody else say, man, I, I, do you think I'll ever get off the oxygen? And do you think I'm going to be okay? And you don't know if they're going to make it to next week. Mm-hmm. And then to watch the fear in somebody's eyes as you uh, take them up a level of care and they, they hear the doctor say that they're considering intubation. Um, and to get the text from other friends who, who know that you're working on these floors and know that you have experience and say, hey, my dad's just moving to the ICU. What kind of questions do I need to ask them? Because I can't be there. Um, and, you know, seeing them maybe through through a glass uh, window, um, it changes your, 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 uh, your empathy. Because, I mean, humans naturally, we're, when, when there's a large scale thing, it's hard to be empathetic for that. I mean, I listened to one podcast and they gave the example of you know, whenever you hear about, uh, I'm going to help Lamech by, with Compassion International. And, you know, the South Sudan, I am helping him get food for $30 a month. But then if it's, you see on TV, uh, starvation and disease plague in uh, North Sudan, thousands are dead. And you're like, man, isn't that life is terrible. End of times, wars, rumors of wars, and we can just kind of, <laughs> but when it's one person, when it's an individual that you know, or you've had that intimate care for, because nursing gets real close. I mean, you, you when you can't even roll without losing your oxygen, mm. um, you, you have to do some things for people that they can't do for themselves. So when you have that close of a relationship and you, you do talk and you find out about people's lives and then to have them pass away um, and go ahead and, um, I mean, there at the beginning, we were required to put, um, you know, bags over heads as we put them in body bags because we didn't want, when you die, the the body does expel air and gas and we couldn't afford, you know, that droplet to go into the air. So that was a new experience because, uh, you know, I'm used to putting people in body bags, but not tying a plastic bag around their head first. And it's just when you come from that type of an atmosphere and you're emotionally and physically exhausted from putting this on and taking it off and putting it on and taking it off and going into each room and washing your hands, changing gloves, um, and then you see someone like, is this even, does anybody know anybody that's even had the disease? Like, And then it moved to, does anybody know anybody that's even died? And then it's, you know, the Lord is going to watch out for us. And it's like, you know, no, uh, uh, yes, he's going to watch out for us. But we can mitigate this in some ways hmm. that will either lessen the symptoms. Um, and and there's, there's a lot to get into on our lockdowns, the answer. And, you know, yeah, math. Yeah. And who's telling me to wear the mask and when and states' rights and I kind of get lost in there too. Um, and I don't think it's an either or. Yeah. 
I don't think any of it's. Well, either. I, I think one of the key words you mentioned is empathy, and we, I've talked about that with previous guests on the podcast. That when you go through something difficult, and by nature of this podcast, that's a lot of the people that come on. They have gone through difficult things because that's what makes the compelling story. Often, um, one of the key words that I hear often is empathy. Right? That you there's understanding, and I think it's such a valuable word um, because that I, I think I'm convinced that there are some of the the only way that we can bridge some of the divides whether it's political divides things like that is is by actually experiencing what people that whether they voted a certain way the thoughts that they that go through their mind why they voted that way in that particular region of the country i mean you live in the inner city there's a reason why you're tend to vote this way as opposed to living in a rural setting. There's different. And so I think even if we don't land on, on the same perspective on whether let's take COVID and lockdowns and all that, I think having empathy is, is a huge step in, in understanding. Um, I, I want to circle back to the thought of isolation. And so some people have made the suggestion. So, so you mentioned um, that people are dying alone. And I just think of that. And I just think how terrible that is. And some have said, well, no, that this shouldn't be happening. This is the, you know, we've heard what the cure uh, can't be worse than the disease. Right. Yeah. And so where do you fall with that? And in addition to that, there's been a lot of talk on depression. So I just saw a article by the Toronto star and in Canada, according to the Toronto star, um, since the pandemic started, one in 10 Canadians have contemplated a committed su committing suicide. Again, just according to this article. So have you seen those levels of depression, suicidal thoughts, things like that, that with patients coming in, have you seen that rise or not? What's, what's been your take on that? Well, it's different um, going to, to a floor um, than it is in the emergency department. So um, I, I can't really speak to the amount of people coming in with solely depression, but I can tell you my patients, I mean, we're giving out more Ativan and, and more, more types of drugs that will help you with anxiety. Um, and I don't know whether that's solely due to depression or also if you can't breathe, um, you get anxiety. Even if you're getting supplemental oxygen, part of hypoxia is I got to breathe and it may not manifest itself as I got to breathe. It can just be like snipping at the nurse and like, you guys don't know what you're doing and blah, blah, blah. And I got to get out of here. And, um, so giving people some of those things and helping them sleep with heavy things like Seroquel and all these different things. So I have seen a little, we do a little bit more of that. Um, but on an observational level, yeah, I mean, I, I've lost count of the amount of people who, I mean, grown men in their fifties and sixties breaking down and just crying with me at bedside. And, you know, I'm one that's uncomfortable. Like my wife, if she starts crying, that shuts down any type of confrontation we have. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. What are you doing? So when a grown man starts that. So if like, we start having a confrontation, I know what to do. Here. Yeah, just, just start bawling. And I'll, you know, <laughs> it's okay, you're right. You're right. What, what, what do you need? Um, so, you know, when you have a 50, 60 year old man who's stuck in there and I have one in mind right now, I have lots of faces um, where they're just, you know, they can't get off of, 30, 40 liters of oxygen and um, they're stuck there and they haven't seen their family in three weeks and they don't know what the future holds and, you know, they're thinking over things and they just break down and you just, they, the, the biggest thing is just being with them in those moments. Mm. Um, and I, I don't really know what to say, um, but just being there and holding a hand and, um, you know, that touch is really important, albeit it's with a glove on. So it's not the same, um, but yeah, I mean the the, the numbers are are. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the numbers when they come out. Um, people track these things. I was talking to a psychiatric nurse practitioner, um, and she she's um, finishing up. She's almost done with school. But she was doing her clinical, and they thankfully were given the the go ahead to use emergency use of telehealth, um, so that they could get more people. You, you know psychiatric patients when it's on the severe side aren't really good at schedules um you know especially if it's something that's chemically um also where they're you know addicted to something scheduling probably isn't their best thing so if you know they they missed an appointment they can just call in 
Um, but yeah, they they were doing a lot more prescriptions for anti-depression medication. Um, and I haven't seen any numbers, so I can't speak to if suicide rates have gone up. Um, but again, that'll be manifested in, in data um, later on, I would assume, because we, we definitely track that. Um, but I, I do agree. I mean, I, I went with the lockdowns because that was best practice at the time. And I told uh, my friends and family, yeah, we, we really need to do this um, and uh, followed it. Um, whether it worked, that's, that's currently being researched. Yeah. Um, well, it, and let, let's just talk about that because we I mean there's a number of different things we can cover, but let, let's talk about that for a second because that's I think that's a very that's a very real see again as a student of history when I go back and I see political leaders oftentimes the times that they um, bring about change is in the midst of problems and crisis and they often use the crisis as an opportunity to leverage whatever their agenda they're pushing and so I am sensitive to that that reality um but on the same hand um if we need to lock down then we need to and so and i've and i've heard different things possibly if, if um when joe biden becomes president that possibly the first hundred days of uh, reinforced masking and all these things and so um just from your perspective ha- did the lockdowns help that, that from your observation i don't, I don't know that's the yeah. thing i don't know because uh, too like okay if it, and it's not an either or, I don't think. So if, if everybody gets sick and we have a labor shortage, that's going to affect the economy. Mm-hmm. If everybody stays home and we have a demand shortage, that's going to affect the economy. Like the economy is very, very sensitive to, to labor and, and demand and production, supply and demand, um, which is why we have all time uh, low interest rates. It's, it's great for people to want to buy a car. Um, but it's not a great indicator for our economy. You know, it's mm. low interest rates, not good, not good. Um, so whether it worked or not, I mean, I, I, I'm not even dodging the question. I just don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's also the side of it where, okay, whenever we're going towards um, giving somebody a vaccination uh, in the United States or third world country for a particular disease, it's for herd immunity right now. Right. Mm. So, if we if nobody gets this disease and we just lock down, um, nobody's going to get herd immunity, right? Um, and the, the thought is certainly, you know, we we want to mitigate death and side effects. Um, and we know this is a terrible disease, but we didn't know how bad it was at the time. We just knew it's like you see cartoons with the spiky horns and it's going to get you. And um, I mean, it, it's a terrible thought that you could be, you know, having strokes and 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 have uh, be a 20, 30 year old with heart disease after this. And, um, you know, it affects your brain. Why do we lose taste and smell? Because the virus is inside your brain doing, you know, little brain damage to yourself, hopefully short term. Mm. So knowing all that, um, but, but then also we need to achieve herd immunity. So it's like, okay, do we hurt the economy? Do we wait for the vaccine? How do we achieve? And now people aren't saying, a lot of people are saying they're not going to take the vaccine anyways. So there's a lot of nuance to it. And the short answer is, I, I don't know. I don't want to do another one um, yeah. for my own sanity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also, I, I don't know if it really worked because yeah. we're look where we're at now. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're back to uh, the excess mortality in the United States is 200,000 plus. Um, mm. So whether that's all deaths, all deaths for, for this year, there's 200,000 more than there should be based uh, on information going back to 2013. So the... The obvious, well, the the rational thing would be to attribute it to a global pandemic. That makes sense to me because I don't think more people are crashing their cars. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, the again, I I don't know. Uh, I yeah. don't want to do it again. Um, certainly, yeah, if no, no, no. That, that that makes yeah, that that makes sense. If if you got a question, go ahead and put post it in the chat box. I want to get to Kyle's question here in a second. Um, when you tie, it's okay. I gotta share this real quickly. When we first started using the phrase herd immunity um i would i was like man that's that's an interesting phrase right and i began using it pretty frequently in conversation until my wife heard me the one day and she said what are you saying i said well i'm saying hurt immunity as in when <laughs> and she's like 
Ezra, what are you talking about? It's herd immunity, not hurt immunity. <laughs> so whenever I hear of herd immunity, I always go back to that. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, the herd. Okay, yes, that makes so much more sense. So I probably sounded pretty ridiculous to a lot of people that I that I talked with initially about well, herd immunity. Yes. Well, and it's kind of insulting you know, <laughs> to refer to ourselves as the herd. Uh, so. A bunch of around <laughs> I know here. I was being I was being more uh, socially yeah polite um okay so again so many other questions I could get to one I want to hit right now uh, you mentioned the vaccine um, I just saw an article right before we popped on here that the president said we might have a vaccine within uh, days really yeah. and I don't know exactly how fast that would roll out that, that's kind of debatable but uh, at this point would you I hear a lot of people saying uh, no, I'll wait for the second, third wave. Thank you. Would you take it? <laughs> again, I, I don't know <laughs> soon, and I'll tell you again. Why. This is this is the joy of being the yeah. host and bringing you on. Well, am I sweating? I don't know. No, uh, the 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 information is going to be released to the FDA this week. That's uh, I'm sure why uh, President Trump has said, "Hey, we may have a vaccine." And really, you got to give credit where it's it's due. Um, back in March, April, I forget when uh, his administration implemented Operation Warp Speed. It was like, no, no. I mean, even if they go warp speed, it's going to be another two to three years at best. In the cal same calendar year, um, we have a, a, a potentially um, uh, a vaccine with the efficacy of up to 95%. That's ridiculous. Mm. Um, and it's it's based on new technology that's, you know, a decade or so old. Um, so it's not necessarily a new vaccine. It's just something that can be done very, very quickly. And there's a lot of molecular biology that we can get into in the pharma uh, uh, kinetics of it. But um, as far as if I would take it, um, TBD, um, see me next week. Um, yeah. Because um, there, there certainly is a risk because we don't have long-term studies. Um, and I saw somebody posting something about... Um, they were either asked, what are the long-term uh, effects of this? Do we, and it's like, well, it's not even released yet, so I'm not sure that we know. Yeah. Um, but certainly no steps, as I understand it, were skipped, even though Operation Warp Speed might make you think, okay, well, what did they? What corners did they cut? No, nothing was skipped. And as long as this is, and the information is, I think, being released on the 10th. So what is that, Thursday? Um, we got... Uh, two days from the, the, the time this podcast um, is being recorded. But um, you know, it's all going to be given to the FDA, a review board, and then they would actually have to give it an emergency release authorization. Um, with that, though, I will say this. For the people saying, I'm not going to be in the first wave. I'm not going to take it first. Well, you're not going to be able to anyways. Um, in fact, the people that are in that first category, which is long-term care patients and also frontline healthcare workers, there's about 20 million, a little over 20 million that can get into that category. Well, Pfizer has about 20 million uh, ready, but it's a double dose schedule. So that's 10 million people. So depending on production, and they're having trouble, as I understand it, with a lipid, little lipid part of the vaccination that actually encases it and it's the protection vehicle to get it towards your cell. Um, that's kind of where the shortage is. Uh, so they can replicate this thing. They don't have to wait for it to grow in an egg like it used to be. And, you know, like, oh, you know, you're under lights. Um, they can make this like that. But, you know, it's all about supply of raw materials, as I understand that. Um, so there's going to be a time where we're still waiting on the first 20 million. And of that 20 million, how many people don't get vaccinated? What's available to them in the next round? General public, they're saying something like April or May, which... It kind of coincides with, um, you had mentioned uh, President-elect Biden's, um, uh, his schedule of 100 days to mask. Um, and I'm not really a big fan of, of mandatory things, but we can get into what it looks like, according to the Bible, uh, to submit to authority, um, which is uncomfortable for A, my male ego, and B, um, I, I don't like being told what to do as an American. So that's, you're, you're absolutely yeah, right. I, th I think that's a real thing that every Christian's had to wrestle with is saying, okay, no, I want to lay aside my personal rights if it's going to benefit others, right? I, I genuinely want to do that. But then I also want to be careful that I don't just meekly submit and say, okay, we're going to close churches for two years. We're going to yeah. close, you know, and shut down local business owners where their families are going to be, you know, like th that's very real stuff. And so, 
yeah, I, I really appreciate that perspective. Just to Kyle's question here, I'll just uh, show it on the screen real quick. He asked, you know, how many people are getting better uh, from COVID in your particular hospital? What, so what is, to add on to that, what's the recovery look like for most of the people that come in? Is, is, it, is it, you know, weeks, days? What's that look like? Yeah. And, and, you know, the qualifier there is what does getting better mean? Um, because we're, we're kind of changing the rules a little bit based on, you know, needs of, we have some beds, but do we have staffing? I'm getting text every day, like, Hey, we'll pay you this, this, and this, and this, and come on in. We're X amount of nurses short. Um, and nurses are getting sick. So that makes us even more short. Uh, and it's not just nurses. You have also, um, AIDS and environmental services and supply. And there's a whole host of people besides nurses that make um, healthcare run uh, that nurses and doctors cannot function without them. Mm. Or at least we would function very, very poorly. Um, but what does getting better look like? And to what I said about, um, you know, the rules have changed. We're sending people home. Um, and I, I see the 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 uh, clarification meaning discharged. I can't see uh, see specific discharge numbers. Um, I do know in the last month or so, and uh, we've we've discharged a lot of people, but it's with qualifiers of hey, we're going to send you home on oxygen. Uh, these are people that are up, walkie, talkie, just fine. Um, and it's like okay, we've got to you to a point where you're only on two to three liters. Uh, of oxygen. So we're going to get, um, it's a great time to be in the oxygen business, by the way, if you want to start a company, uh, we're going to send that home with you. Um, so if there's nothing else we're going to do for you, if we're not going to give you the remdesivir, if we're not going to give you the decadron, the, the steroids and, and the, the antiviral, if we're not going to give you plasma, which has been all over the news, we've been doing since, you know, April or May, uh, at my hospital, you know, we're just giving you oxygen. Um, but you cannot function or survive without it. Yeah, we can we can send you home. But is that a great outcome? Yeah, people are being discharged, but the data is is so confusing to look at because there's qualifiers for just about everything. Um, you know, you have to look at research is is different uh, when when you're only in a uh, a room looking at a computer screen or a petri dish. The way it translates to real life is completely different. So you got to have those, you know, those key stakeholders in to say, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, but here's how we're sending them home. And it's not like they came in, you know, usually you'd have somebody come in like, okay, well, you know, we could send you home, but we're going to see, we're going to watch you for another couple of days because your oxygen still isn't where we want it to be. Nope. It's, Hey, we need your bed. I mean, I've had people come in and we give them a couple rounds, five days of this or that, and it's home and you're on oxygen. Um, you're on your own. Um, so it's, yeah, a lot are being discharged, um, and really the mortality uh, of it. We're, we're getting good at treating it and helping people survive with you know proning patients and 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 flipping them over, and and we can get into the whole thing of is our ventilators bad or 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 what or or was there a spike in mortality related to ventilators because only the worst people went on ventilators, you know? So the data needs looked into, but um, I mean people are surviving. Um, but it's the concerns of how, what's their quality of life after? Because there's people that I, you know, just objectively, I see on Facebook, hey, pray for me because I've been, I've been out of the hospital for three or four weeks and I still can't walk to the kitchen without getting gassed. Yeah. Um, and these are not people that are walking in with, you know, CHA or uh, congestive heart failure and diabetes and like, well, obviously these people are going to die. Like, no, right. these are just normal people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So burnout, that's a thing I want to cover just in closing here. Sure. Um, working with, so a full-time freelance writer, I've worked with a lot of medical doctors, just given what I do, uh, in, in some of the writing that I've worked on over the last several months. And one of the things that has re reoccurringly been a theme has been physician burnout. And so, um, for nurses, doctors that are working extended shifts, and what is the general mood that you have sensed among people that you work with, your colleagues? Um, and what is their mindset uh, coming into a church on Sunday morning? What are they? What are you thinking about when you work all week and then you walk into church on Sunday and you sit down? 
Well, it depends. If I work the night before, I'm probably not there. Um, and thankfully, my church has some other options, you know, to go on a Friday or a Saturday night as well. Um, but, you know, you work these 12-hour shifts, and everybody likes, uh, they like to have those four days off that we get scheduled a little bit. But nobody wants to work those three twelves that turn into four twelves whenever the manager calls and says, "Hey, you've been doing great this week. I'd like to uh, reward you with more time here." Uh, and you're <laughs> like, oh, "Yeah, okay." And then they start. I'm actually saying, not that great. Yeah, I'm, I'm terrible. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, walking in, especially right now, we're tired. Um, we don't know all the answers. Um, but we know that w- the reason why we're there is ultimately the patients. So right now we're not only physically tired, and I see this with the people I work with, none of them want to wear masks. None of them want to, and and they speak out in frustration on that and then put it on and go. But they're also emotionally tired, and that's a whole another side of this that I think people that haven't worked in those extreme environments like a level one trauma center or a surgical intensive care unit where you're dealing with real trauma that's happening now, Mm. um, you are... the emotional um, side of that care is is intense, very intense. Like there's a lot of research on um, the that particular group of physicians and nurses with the secondary trauma, uh, and we don't even we it's just emerging in the last five to ten years. We don't even realize it's happening. When I mean, I can, I was talking to um, one one nurse. He was, I was trying to mentor him a little bit, and he was saying, you know, I just can't sleep lately. He, he had been at a level one trauma center in the emergency department for just, you know, five to six months. And he's like, I, I wake up, do you ever wake up and you just like, you've had nightmares and it's like every night. And I'm like, yeah, but, and I found myself saying like, yeah, but you know, y- you learn to deal with it. It wasn't, that's going to change or that's going to go away. It's no, you just learn to deal with it. And then another nurse was telling me, you know, her nightmares were waking up and, and, and she, she can see, or dreaming. She can see all her patients around her. She knows exactly what they need, where to get it, how to give it but she can't move. She can't help them. Um, and you know, you can, uh, you know, get from that infer from that, what you will about helplessness, loss of control, overwhelming. It all points to burnout for me. Um, and it translates into academic level one trauma centers for the most part have about a 35 to 40% turnover rate in their nursing staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're below that, you're ahead of the game. So if you can find a way to keep people, um, but then also, I mean, they're just working tons of hours and, and the, it doesn't stop. And so I think we're seeing that kind of broaden out to a bunch of nurses, not that they don't have a stressful time on floors or mid-surge units or step downs, but that emotional side of it and the intensity of the care and the acuity has skyrocketed. I mean, we, um, I know in my experience, we've had ICU level patients on step down floors because there's not enough room. Um, so you just find that patient that we can, we can move to that floor and maybe we can float an ICU nurse over and, you know, we're getting creative with the care, but the, the acuity has gone up. So long hours, acuity, you're in an environment that you don't recognize all the time. Float pull, we're used to it, but other people, they're being floated between floors to, you know, balance the, the nurse to patient ratio. Um, and so they're working in environments they're not used to wearing things they're not used to wearing all while being told, Hey, uh, if you get this, uh, you'll be off work for two weeks. So loss of income. And then there's also, um, dealing with my family at home. My kids are uh, out of school. Uh, the mental health side of that, where you're constantly, constantly, constantly on high alert, uh, on that danger, um, you're in fight or flight mode. That's going to take a toll on people. So I, I think we'll we'll see some effects of this in nursing. I think we're understanding more about what PTSD really looks like, and it's not just um, as you know, not diminishing this at all. You know, veterans, um, the, the grenades and and, and and loud noises and things like that. We're we're recognizing PTSD mm-hmm. and secondary trauma and trauma as real uh, problems in healthcare for turnover, people leaving, people. And I'll be honest with you, nurses are at a high, high risk for uh, substance abuse because of what we experience, the secondary trauma. And I can tell you stories of, you know, coloring with a four-year-old while we work on her mom in the next room because she had an overdose and her saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to show this to mommy. Where's mommy? And you're like, well, she just died. But, you know, you can't. So it, you, you become this advocate um, and almost a, a just an emotional scapegoat in a way. 
And then yep. you leave that code and you go out and someone's like, hey, I haven't seen you in 45 minutes. Where have you been? They ordered Tylenol. And you're like, and HIPAA. I can't say anything. So it's customer service. Yes, sir. I'll be right back. Uh, give me just a second. Um, so I, I, you know, there, there will be a, a, just, a, there'll be a public toll with mental health, which is why I need to, I think we need to be careful when we just flippantly say, well, the numbers are back up, everybody back into your houses. Um, cause it's very real that we'll see the numbers on domestic violence. We'll see the numbers on mental health issues and substance abuse. And, um, well, we're better for kids to be than school. I mean, they're, yeah. they're not, I have trouble with zoom. Um, yeah. so I can only imagine like you know, what it's like for, a, uh, and this is their childhood. So yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see uh, in the next five to five years what, what the, the actual toll is. Um, yeah, but the pandemic is, is terrible any way you look at it. Yeah, no, it's, it's so challenging, all the things that you mentioned. And, and one of the things I think of uh, talking to, uh, listening to another doctor share that one of the things that they mentioned was working in a medical environment. They said um, the conversation, oddly enough, was on why doctors don't have more life coaches and people that help them. And he said, well, one of the reasons we don't is because few people understand the reality of walking into a patient's room and describing some of the things that you just experienced. And then 10 minutes later, uh, maybe you even see a patient die. And then 10 minutes later, you're off to something else. And it might be serious, might not be. It said it's very hard for other people to relate to that. And then when I heard that, I said, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, as you were sharing, one of the lines that just keeps coming back to mind, I guess, is just you mentioned the word emotional. And I think it's interesting, not only from the political aspect, the COVID aspect, people are generally um, – maybe it's getting better in some ways as we've learned how to handle this, but we're pretty on edge a lot of times. Yep. And I think that's, well, it's a need for grace. Hey, it's a need for the grace story podcast. How's that for a segue? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have a podcast for that. We actually do have a podcast episode on burnout. We have another one on anxiety. Boom. There's lots of good stuff over there. You can catch up on all 17 or 18 episodes, whatever we're up to now. <laughs> That's a beautiful segue. Hey, where, where can people find you? You mentioned that, but um, yeah, just, uh, they can find you. So greatstoryministries.com. Uh, you can find out more about the, the podcast and there's a podcast page on there. Uh, you can also find the podcast on any of your streaming services, you know, Spotify, Pocket Cast, um, Apple, uh, whatever it may be. Um, and there's lots of good stuff over there. If you want to hear something or want to communicate with me about Grace Story Ministries, uh, you can go and give me an email, uh, shoot me an email at nate at graystoryministries.com. And if there's something you you want to hear about or a guest you want to have on uh, or you want to be on the podcast, uh, you can shoot us an email and we go through Ryan, our content strategy director, and, and make decisions on that. So uh, those would be the best places to, to reach out. Nate, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that was neat. And I really appreciated Nate's perspective. Uh, it's always cool to me to talk to people that are on the front lines of things, regardless of whether it's a nonprofit or, in this case, the medical community. Um, it's just so fascinating to get an inside take. And so I appreciate Nate for coming on. And again, I just want to remind you, January the 18th, launching a brand new format with my friend David Harkoff as the new co-host for the Monday Christian Podcast. So going to be exciting. Looking forward to that. Until next time, my name's Ezra Beyer. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com. 